First Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thank you, Alex. This morning we're going to start our series on the book of 1 Peter. And I think we're going to really enjoy this letter as it speaks into our current situation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when someone addresses you, you know, how they address you tells you a lot about what they're going to tell you. You know, many of you were around family members during the uh, holidays. And I, you know, I saw my grandparents and some of my aunts, and I'm not going to tell you what they call me because they have some cheesy little names. But, you know, when they have these little terms of endearment, they, they address you with these names. You kind of know what they're going to say next. It's usually going to be something good or whatnot. But other times, you know, especially parents, when you address your children, there are certain ways that you address your children. Maybe you use their first and last name, or maybe you use their, their first, middle, and last name. And then if you do that, though, you know the message that's coming is maybe a message of correction, Right? And so the way you address your audience or the person you're talking to says a lot about how or what your content of your message is. And so if you were going to write a letter to the church, how would you address the church? What would you call the church in your letter? You know, there are a number of names you could choose from. You could call it the Bride of Christ, uh, the Household of God. You could call it uh, the Community of Faith. There's a number of terms that are used in the New Testament to describe the church. But in this letter that First Peter, I mean that Peter writes in First Peter, he addresses the church in a unique way. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the only time that this description of the church is used in the New Testament epistles. It's by the Apostle Peter. And this is what he says. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he says, to you Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, you are elect exiles. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, look at that title for the church in this letter. The elect exiles. I want to look at, first of all, the elect and see what, what he means by that. And then I want us to look at this idea of being an exile and see what he means by that and the significance of that. And so what we're going to see in this letter as we unpack this title is that, as one scholar noted, this, this letter was written uh, to travelers. It's kind of a traveler's guide to Christian pilgrims. This letter will help those of us who are in Christ to live our lives to the full for the glory of God, even though we are in what Peter calls an exile, a state of exile. And we're going to see what that means in just a moment. So first, I want to unpack that first word, and then we'll look at the second. So what does he mean by the word elect? Well, he tells us here in verses 2 and 3, when he says, To those who are elect exiles throughout Asia Minor, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. And so what we see here, first of all, is that we are elect, we are part of the church, part of the people of God, because of the foreknowledge of God. And the idea of foreknowledge is not just that God knew us or knew something about us, but as one scholar noted, the expression foreknowledge does not mean that God had information in advance about Christ or about His elect. Rather, it means that both Christ and His people were the objects of God's loving concern from all eternity. So it's not just a knowledge about someone in the future, but rather it's this loving concern that is directed toward not only Christ, but the people that are found in Christ. And this loving concern has been applied to our lives through what Peter calls the sanctification of the Spirit. And some commentators believe that what Peter is talking about here is our conversion. When someone moves from being faithless to, have, to having faith in Christ. And then Peter says that, he, that we have been given new life through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see all throughout this letter is that Peter is going to reach back and he's going to continue to use this Old Testament covenant language to describe the church, the new, the new people of God. And what I mean by covenant language is I mean language that, that describes a permanent relationship. And so, for example, this idea of being sprinkled by the blood finds its origin in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have one in the pew in front of you that you're welcome to use. But Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8, this is the image, I believe, that Peter is reaching back to and bringing forward to show how, through Christ, this people of God has been brought into a covenant with God. Exodus chapter 24, verse, verse 4, says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so you get the picture here that God has rescued these people out of Egypt, out of slavery by his grace, brought them to Sinai. And now he gives them direction on what it looks like to walk with him and to be with him. And Moses reads the the book of the covenant to the people and they commit to the Lord that they will in fact follow the Lord, trust in the Lord. And then he takes the blood of the oxen and he sprinkles it on them. And then Peter reaches back and takes that image and brings it forward and says, okay, those of you who are the elect, the people of God, those of you who have uh, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought into the people of God through the blood of Christ. It's been sprinkled on you. It's been sprinkled on you. You've come to God through Jesus Christ. And so those who are foreknown by God, sanctified by the Spirit, through the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, are the elect that Peter addresses in this letter. Now let's turn to that second word in his address. He calls the church, the people of God, the elect exiles. Now when you hear that word exile... If you're familiar with the Old Testament, at least, there's a certain image that probably comes to your mind. And we all have some idea of what it means to be in exile. But if you have some knowledge of the Old Testament, you probably are thinking about when the people of God rebelled against him and God took them out of the promised land and put them into Babylon in exile. And so the idea of exile comes with this connotation of negativity. You know, it's, a, it's a result of discipline. But I don't think Peter's using that term that way here. I think what Peter's referring to is not that you know, as the church we're being punished, we're in exile, but rather we're on this journey. We're on this journey in this life for a life that will be ours in the future. And so currently we're living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And eventually it will be made right by Christ. But in the meantime, we're in what Peter calls the exile. This is not our permanent home the way the world is now. But we're hoping, we're moving, we're journeying towards what Christ will complete when he returns. And so in the meantime, we're in this exile. But whether you are in exile because of some type of punishment, or whether you're in exile because you're in this journey, there are some similarities. Just think about it. If you, were, if you were taken out of your home, your homeland, and put somewhere else in a foreign place, you know, what, what would you need to live? What would you need to survive? Well, you would need you know, food, water, oxygen. But you'd also need hope. You know, a Yale professor uh, named uh, Miroslav Volf uh, posted this quote the other day. He says, he was quoting a uh, a rabbi uh, in Auschwitz. And he was saying to his son that man can live three weeks without food, 
three days without water, but cannot live three minutes without hope. And so if you are in exile, one of the key ingredients that you need in order to live life the way it's meant to be lived is you, you must have hope. There must be an element of hope. You know, I was reading a story uh, the other day. It's a short story. It's entitled In Exile by a writer named Anton Chekhov. And in this story, he focuses on a few characters. And these characters were pronounced guilty because of a crime either they did or didn't do. And as a consequence, the punishment was to be exiled to Siberia. And so they have to go to Siberia and try to make a living there. They were taken out of all that they knew, all their relationships, all their possessions, and placed in Siberia. Well, Chekhov uses these characters to help us see, okay, how do we live in exile? How do you, how do you live your daily life, get the most out of life in exile? Well, one of the characters named, nicknamed Canny says the way you live in exile and, and just get through it is to eliminate desire. You know, if you can just tell yourself that you do not need those relationships that you had or that you want, that you do not need those pleasures or those possessions that you had or that you want, if you can minimize desire, then you can live the life in exile. You can get through it. Well, there's another character. He's an exiled aristocrat. And what he tries to do is he tries to bring all the things of his former life and that he wants into his life in exile. And so he tries to bring everything that he longs for or that he misses back into his life while he's in exile. And, and what happens is both of these men experience degrees of loneliness and defeat because they can't cram it in or they can't minimize the desire completely. And so the problem is, we're left with the question. If you are in exile, if you are on this journey, how do, you, how do you live the life that God would have you to live? I mean, do you suppress desire and say, okay, I have these longings, I have this desire for relationships, for pleasure, for satisfaction. Do I just suppress that and pretend they don't exist? Or do I just pretend I have it all put together now and I manufacture some plastic smile and just paste it on my face all the time. <clears throat> well, no. The good news is, as Christians, we don't suppress our desires. And we don't pretend that life is always okay. But there's actually a third way. And that's what Peter's going to tell us throughout the next several verses. The first thing that he deals with is this idea, like I mentioned earlier, of hopelessness. He writes in verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you see this idea that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope because of what Christ has done for us. So in the midst of the, of the exile, one of the ways that we live as Christians is, is that we live lives full of hope. 
It's this idea that what God is doing and will do is for our good and that our future will actually be better than our present. Now just imagine if you were in exile, like one of these characters in Chekhov's short story, and you got news from a reliable source that your life would soon improve or that your future life would eclipse the life that you have now. I mean, would that not affect how you're living now? I mean, there would be some thread of optimism there in your life that you know, okay, this it's going to get better at some point here. There is a future laid up for me, and it's secure. And so what, Paul, I mean, what Peter's saying is, what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ is not only forgiving you of your sin and giving you life now, but He's also given you a life that is to come. This inheritance that He talks about that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power who are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So think of it like this. Have you ever, have you ever participated in a surprise birthday party? If you haven't, you at least know the idea, right? In, in, in the title itself, you know that it's a surprise. And so what you do is you have this birthday person. You know, they're going to have a birthday soon. And so someone gets the idea, okay, I'm going to throw them a surprise birthday party. So here's what needs to happen. You need to have somebody. You need to have somebody who can coordinate all the details, contact all the friends, get them all together, explain what we're going to do. You know, they're going to walk in. We're going to yell surprise. It's going to be great. So you got this person coordinating all this over here and making sure all this happens. But then you also have this other person over here working with the person that actually is having the birthday. You know, this is who the party's for. And so they're coordinating with this person, you know, making sure that, you know, they don't learn about certain things so it can be a surprise. And they're, you know, leading, leading them certain ways up to the party so, you know, they don't exactly know what's coming ahead. And, and then, you know, finally they walk through the door and there's this big surprise and they have a great party. Well, in, in a similar way, that's kind of what Peter's talking about here. If you caught it in the verse, we saw that there are two things that are being kept by God, guarded by God. One is this inheritance, and we can think of that as the party. You know, God is orchestrating, planning. He's done all that needs to be done for this party to happen. Okay, that's, that's what's coming. <clears throat> and then on the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, he has the person who is going to participate in the party. That's me and that's you. That's all those who are in Christ. And he is guiding them and he is leading them and he is, and he is guarding them by his power to ensure that they get to this place where they can enjoy the party. And so what Peter says is you have this living hope within you, this living hope that this will happen. And I guess this, the surprise part for us is that we do know it's coming. We don't know exactly when. And we don't know exactly what all is going to be there, but we know, we know it's going to be a party. And so that, I guess that's the surprise element. But the great thing is, and what should give you hope, is that Christ is both guarding you and bringing you along, as well as guarding the inheritance. And if you are familiar with an inheritance and, and all that goes into that, you know that there are many things that can affect your inheritance. Let's say from your parents or grandparents or whatnot, you know, 
the stock market, you know, the economy, the legal system, you know, whatever it may be. There are all types of threats to your inheritance. But in this inheritance that God gives you, it says, Peter, Peter says that it is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And I think he writes this because when you're in exile, sometimes you could feel forgotten and you could feel lonely. And what Peter's doing is he's writing all those Christians throughout Asia Minor. He's saying, God has not forgot about you, but there's an inheritance that he is guarding for you. And not only is he guarding that for you, but he is guarding you. And he will bring you into that. So, one issue that we're dealing with in exile is this idea of hopelessness. You know, can we have hope? And the answer is, yes, salvation is not like a Christmas present that you want and maybe you'll get it, maybe not. But rather, it's a sure hope. It's something that has been accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we can have a sure hope. Now, another challenge that we face, though, that threatens our hope, <clears throat> are the trials of life. The different things you face. And Peter addresses that in verses 6 through 8 when he says, In this you rejoice, talking about this, this promise of this new life, this inheritance, all that God has done for you. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, it's interesting that he says this. You know, Peter, he's probably in his 60s when he's writing this. And he's seen a lot, obviously. And he's saying, you know, in this you rejoice. God has done a great work for you. And though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So Peter's saying, 60 years sounds like a lot. But in the scope of eternity, you know, this life, this little while, if necessary, you've, you've been grieved by various trials. But in the midst of that, you can rejoice. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. When you, when you encounter trials, what, what, does it, what do those trials inflame in you? What do they produce? Now, I think in all of us, you know, the initial reaction is one of you know, disappointment, perhaps, or anger, or frustration, or bitterness, maybe initially. But do those things reside and continue to be a part of your experience? Because we all face trials, we know that. And what Peter's saying is that God actually uses trials to test and purify our faith. You know, one scholar said it this way, he said, Our trials keep us trusting. And I love what he says when he says this, listen to this. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. They burn away our self-confidence and they drive us to our Savior. Here's what we need to see. 
is that trials, they do not birth faith within you. And you experience trials. They do not birth faith within you. But rather, what they do is they reveal what is already there. Just like the gold, you know, you have this picture of the gold going in the furnace and being purified and you're burning away all that is not gold so you can have purer gold. You know, you throw a rock into the furnace and let it burn up. Well, if there's no gold there, there's no purification in the sense that there's, there was never gold in the rock to begin with. It just all burns up. And so the idea is when the trial comes upon you, the trial doesn't produce faith. It just reveals whether there's faith there or not. And so when you go through the trial, what it'll do is it'll show you, do you have faith or not? And if you do not have faith, what the trial is going to do in your life, it's, it's going to allow bitterness and hopelessness to take over. If you do not have faith, then bitterness and hopelessness will take over. But when the trial comes... <laughs> And if faith is found, then what Peter's saying is it will be purified. It will be strengthened and it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So are we in exile? Are we in this journey that we have to walk through? We all have to walk through. Yes, we are. We are in exile. Is there hope? Yes, there is. There's hope in Christ. There's hope that there's this inheritance. There's there's this new life in Christ that we can live a life of hope. Will you face difficulties? Absolutely. You will. Is God able to see you through? Most definitely. And so what we're going to see in this letter continually as we walk through this letter together is that As we walk out our days in exile, we'll be able to do so to the glory of God, to the good of those around us, full of joy and full of hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that Peter penned in order to encourage those of us who are scattered throughout the world who have faith in you. Lord, thank you by your mercy you have called us to a living hope. You have caused us to be born again, to have new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as we face our trials that we have in our lives, even now, that you would give us a glimpse of what you have for us in the future. You would help us to cling to your promises and your word. You would help us to see that this life is a journey. It's not an end in and of itself, but you have an inheritance laid up for us that is undefiled, imperishable. No one can touch it. Guarded by you. And Lord, we are so thankful that we, if we are in Christ, are guarded by you as well. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is hopeless, uh, does not see a life even beyond today, that they would cling to your promises, that they would give their lives to Christ today and that they would be born again to a living hope. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.